This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard Dennis is Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. He joined me to discuss his new book, Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. Richard and I talk about the story that Australians have been told for decades, that the less government spends, the better their lives will be. In true Richard Dennis fashion, he overthrows this outdated and incorrect narrative and tells us why we need to embrace the idea that the public sector can play a bigger and better role in improving our lives. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm so, so pleased to be rejoined on the program by a favourite and regular, Dr Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, based up in Canberra. And uh, we're going to be discussing his book, Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy, which has been released today as part of the In the National Interest series, which is out through Monash University Publishing. It is a fantastic series, and I've really enjoyed speaking with Richard about his previous books, including Econobabble, which is actually sitting right in front of me next to my microphone as well. So I'm really delighted to welcome Richard back. Hi there, Richard, and how are you today? I'm very well, Amy, up here in Canberra, where we're currently convoy-free, but uh, (laughs) not quite COVID-free, but luckily nearly everyone here is vaccinated, so yeah, we're doing all right. Yeah, Canberra really is a standout, isn't it, at the ACT in general, in terms of vaccination rates and this kind of civic duty, civic-mindedness, it seems, to go and do the right thing. Oh, absolutely, and and I think that's that's no accident. I mean, we we have one of the highest rates of vaccination in the world, uh, and it's partly, I think, overwhelmingly because a we have a population that takes government and policy seriously, even if you disagree with you know the decisions of particular governments and policies, but also we had exceptional leadership from Andrew Barr during COVID including that while most states' leaders were talking about when we get to 80%, here's what we're going to do, Andrew Barr's messaging from day one was we need as many people as possible to get vaccinated Mm. as soon as possible. And and if you want to visit your loved ones and if you want the pubs to open, then you should go and vaccinate now because there is no magic number. But what he was telling us all along was the quicker we got vaccinated – the quicker we would be able to get back to normal. And rather than set that once four in five of you have been vaccinated, things will get better, and a lot of people sat around thinking, well, I'm not anti-vax, but I'm happy for other people to get the jab, Uh, yeah, because of very well-managed rollout of vaccine and very good public health messaging, we're one of the most vaccinated places in the world. We've in turn, you know, so far so good, uh, much better health outcomes in a lot of places. Absolutely. And I do remember Andrew Barr being the first really to say that we need to get our youngest vaccinated. And because they weren't yet eligible and uh, it hadn't been approved for their age group, he was even suggesting, you know, maintaining certain levels of public health requirements so that we could ensure that those people who weren't yet able to get vaccinated could in a safe environment. So, I mean, he really has shown a lot of leadership that even the more progressive states didn't in terms of um, suggesting that we should be able to provide a child the ability to avoid infection before they get vaccinated. 
Absolutely, and and vulnerable groups within our community, including the disabled, including people uh, who English as a second language might not have got the information as soon or as clearly as others. Uh, Andrew Barr was adamant all along that that we're collectively not opening up uh, and exposing those groups to risk until we've done everything we can to minimise that risk. And, you know, big picture, I guess, what it really shows is that governments really can and do make a positive difference to our lives. And done well, government and (laughs) policies literally save lives. But, of course, done badly, you you get what we saw in Sydney over summer Mm. with, you know, really just a complete collapse in the testing system because the policymakers that wanted to let it rip didn't bother to put the work into preparing for the inevitable consequences of their own choices. Like, they were surprised by their own decision-making. I mean, you, you really can't get much dumber. Yes. Well, I think the height of it... Well, there are many heights, actually, or lows, I should say, but one of them was certainly the fact that the New South Wales government had announced to everyone before the wave and before um, the holiday period that they would be reducing PCR testing so much across the board, and The Guardian reported this and actually calculated how many sites would have reduced hours knowing that things would surge, knowing that they just lifted mask wearing and all these other type of requirements and they were removing all these hours and capacity out of the testing system, knowing that there would be a surge. So, I mean, it was literally an own goal. So many of the the decisions that the government was making were set up to make worse a situation that doctors and immunologists and scientists literally warned about way in advance in November and early December. So it was kind of shocking to me to see a, a, such a slow-moving train crash. Oh, absolutely. And I think the last time I was on your show, I was talking about the essay I wrote for the monthly on how the COVID vaccine rollout was, you know, one of the biggest disasters in Australian public policy history. Well, that was before the testing disaster uh, and the let it rip disaster yeah. over, over Christmas. And yeah, as I said, it's one thing to get surprised by the predictable. It's entirely an order of magnitude worse to get surprised by the consequences of your own decision-making. You know, and Scott Morrison at the press club last week said uh, that, yes, he might have been a little bit optimistic about Omicron in December. Uh, well, you know, we Australia has had the advantage of a little time machine when it comes to COVID, and that is we can look at Europe and we can look at America and what's happening there usually happens here a month later. So, you know, to be surprised by what happened with Omicron, you had to literally be blind to what was happening overseas and deaf to what the health experts were telling us here. But, you know, this is the thing about a democracy. There's nothing in the Constitution that says we have to be nice. There's nothing in the Constitution that says our leaders have to be smart or kind. And indeed, there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that says people shouldn't be corrupt, uh, which is obviously why this government doesn't want to set up a federal corruption watchdog. It's under no constitutional obligation to do so. Democracy only works when we care about it. And democracy only works when we actually have high expectations for those that we elect to high office. And uh, Scott Morrison and Don Perrottet think that what they did over summer was good enough. And really, it's up to Australians of voting age to decide whether it was or not, because clearly Scott Morrison thinks that what happened over summer was good enough. Yes. 
I mean, this is kind of highlights your book so well, is this idea of the role of government and when does government intervene and what kind of role does it play? And at the moment, we're looking at a very reactionary role and a small role and a very kind of reluctant role. So with that in mind, and obviously that is a starting point, maybe we'll jump into your book and the kind of other role it could play if we weren't in the current situation we're in now, because clearly things can change. We can choose to change it, but we need to have this conversation first. So I wondered if we could start there and and maybe if you could just give us your reflections on this reactive type of role of government that we've seen from the coalition, which we're clearly not going to see change in any new sense. This is going to be an ongoing strategy for them and it's certainly something they're doubling down on. Oh, look, absolutely. And uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of summarise what a, the point I'm making in the essay in a sec. But big picture, we have to separate the, the rhetoric of small government uh, from the reality of small government. So I'll talk about the rhetoric first, uh, and that is that we've been told for decades that we... The smaller we make the public sector, the more efficient the economy will be, the wealthier we will be, uh, and the happier we will be. So we, you know, our whole language uh, is to kind of conflate the size of the state with the efficiency of the economy. We talk about the burden of taxes. We talk about the efficiency of markets. Like everything rhetorically about the Australian economic debate starts from the premise that governments are inefficient uh, and that the less of things they do, the better. Now, we obviously don't think that when it comes to ambulances or fire brigades. We don't think about it when it comes to the police. Not even the Conservatives seem to want to privatise the police just yet. Um, But also, if we look around the world, we see that you know, Australia has one of the highest reliances now on private schools than, than any country in the developed world. I mean, far more kids go to private school uh, in Australia than in the US, for example. Similarly, um, we now take for granted that when you go to the doctor, you'll need your credit card. When you need, uh, you go to the pharmacy, you'll need your credit card. And if you don't want to pull out your credit card, then you can wait years years in pain for something straightforward like a hip replacement. So we kind of think that's normal in Australia now. But in in bastions of communism like Boris Johnson's Britain, um, (laughs) you know, there is not a co-payment to be seen for most of the National Health Service. Uh, And then, of course, you know, countries like Norway and Sweden and Denmark and Finland the countries with much higher uh, levels of productivity than Australia, higher incomes than Australia, by all objective sort of economic indicators, they have stronger, better, richer economies than ours. They also have much higher taxes than ours and much heavier reliance on the public sector. So whether you're talking about the Nordic model or whether you're talking about Uh, I don't know what you'd call Boris Johnson's model, but successive successive governments in the UK, including Thatcher uh, and including all of the Tories, they haven't come anywhere near the Australian reliance 
on on fee for essential health services. So rhetorically in Australia, we talk about small government having to cut, cut, cut. You know, we've, we've talked about this for decades. Uh, Australia's probably more obsessed with budget deficits than any country in the world. The last budget surplus to be delivered in the UK was by Tony Blair back in the 90s. And the last budget surplus in the US was delivered by Bill Clinton, right, mm. same, in the same year. So, so the rest of the world doesn't share our obsession with budget deficits. It never has doesn't share our obsession with slashing public spending and putting user charges on everything. This is almost uniquely Australian. But then there's the reality. The, the current coalition aren't into small government. They're just into cutting spending on things like public health, public schools, public transport. This government is spending record amounts of money on its friends whether it's enormously expensive uh, JobKeeper assistance to businesses that were growing during the crisis or cancelling a $90 billion submarine program to replace it with an even more expensive nuclear submarine program. And when uh, Scott Morrison was asked how much will it cost, he said, we'll spend whatever it takes. You know, just Google how much people in Australia are spending to, to, to build prison camps in Nauru to deter refugees. So while we have this rhetoric of small government and penny-pinching when it comes to aged care nurses or, or, or free rat tests, oh, we couldn't possibly afford to give free rat tests to people, but $40 billion in, in, in JobKeeper assistance, no problem, uh, mm. you know, or... Uh, or, you know, you want to spend billions of dollars a year locking up and deterring uh, refugees, no problem, no problem. So the rhetoric is always small government, but in reality they spend lots of money on the things they want to spend lots of money on, including, of course, car parks and shooting ranges and anything else in a marginal seat that they think will win them a vote. Yes, and it's quite amazing that they kind of get away with this rhetoric to the extent that they do given just how significant the distance is between their rhetoric and the reality. And there's a really fantastic section in the book about deficits, and you just mentioned government spending and deficits. And I did want to just read it out because it, I think it was just so pertinent to what we've just heard. And you were saying that the government and governments have grown in size and power in Australia, and that this is not a new thing. And, and we recall all of the various previous governments like Whitlam and Keating, and you highlight their deficits in comparison to where we currently are and, and share um, some comparisons. So you say that Whitlam delivered a budget deficit equivalent to 1.8% of GDP, which is tiny compared to the deficits delivered by Paul Keating in 1991-92. That was 4.1% by Joe Hockey at 2.4% and by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg in 2020-21, their budget deficit is equivalent to 7.8% of GDP. So comparing 
Whitlam at the beginning there from 1.8 to the current day of 7.8% equivalents. I mean, that is ridiculous that we kind of hold up Gough Whitlam, who, you know, has created these nation-building projects that, you know, he came in expecting, as you say, to deliver a deficit uh, because he was seeking to create change and this required investment. Uh, and then we're hearing from um, our Treasurer, who's out attacking Labor at the moment, saying that uh, Labor spends so much and, um, you know, we're the only sensible economic managers. And I guess I'm wondering, what do they, what are they spending their money on? Like, <laughs> as you said, it is their <laughs> mates, but like, how can we achieve so much under someone like Gough Whitlam and then all this money is going where exactly, Richard? <laughs> Oh, well, good question. Luckily, it's all hidden in a top-secret document called the <laughs> Commonwealth Budget. Yes. Uh, so I'll, I'll answer that in a sec. But, look, yeah, you're spot on. And, and, and let's be crystal clear, Josh Frydenberg will never deliver a budget surplus and Josh Frydenberg will never deliver a budget deficit that is smaller than the one and only deficit that Gough Whitlam ever delivered. All right, so the idea that... 50 years after, 50 years after Gough <laughs> Whitlam was around, we're still kind of saying he's the pin-up boy for, for, for profligacy. Come off it. He was a tight arse um, by modern standards. Yeah. Right? He was stingy. So, yeah, our rhetoric is so out of whack with the reality. Um, why is that? Look, it's partly because progressives... I don't know why, and I've written about this, you know, for years, including in my quarterly essay, Dead Right. Um, progressives just seem to like calling conservatives small government free marketeers when to call them ideologically committed to small government is to flatter them unfairly. They're not, right? They just yeah. don't want to spend money on public health. They don't want to spend money on public education. They don't want to, so they don't. <laughs> but boy, do they spend a lot of money on private health insurance subsidies. And boy, do they spend a lot of money on subsidies for private schools. And boy, do they spend a lot of money being nasty to refugees. And boy, do they spend a lot of money uh, on, on elaborate defence projects that never, ever, ever, ever come in on, on budget. So I try to get people to think about the shape of public spending as much as the size of public spending. Uh, and, you know, that's because really that's, as a democracy, what our governments are in charge of. You know, they literally get to shape our lives. And when they, like Whitlam, spend a lot of money on public housing and spend a lot of money on free university education... They shape our lives and they shape our communities and they shape our society for decades to come, especially, you know, Whitlam's case of helping so many people go to university for the first time. That transformed Australia. Well, this mob who are democratically elected and allowed to spend money on anything they want have chosen to spend it on car parks in marginal seats and uh, subsidies for private schools that have already got equestrian arenas, all right? Mm. And there is nothing illegal about that. So don't let people sort of, you know, the problem is people become sort of impotent with rage rather than thinking, yeah, well, I guess the majority of Australians think that 
you know, supporting schools that can already afford dressage classes is more important than giving a pay rise to aged care nurses. And it is as simple as that. <laughs> it is as simple as that. It's the government of the day that drafts up the appropriation bills and puts them before Parliament, and Parliament then votes on what to spend money on and what to cut spending on. And it's as transparent and crystal clear as that. There's no ideology at play. It's just this government is good at talking about how it thinks we should cut government spending while shoveling enormous amounts of money onto their friends. Mm. And it does also, you know, make me think about the political culture of Australia and also the political history of Australia. And, I mean, I, I recall reading and talking to Laura Tingle about one of her quarterly essays, Great Expectations, which was talking about what the Australian population expect from governments and what they expect their role to be. And this is obviously clearly something that you pick up in this book as well. And this is a book that is trying to spur on the conversation about, well, what do we actually expect? And um, you talk through in this book about countries like uh, Finland, Norway, Sweden and Denmark, those Nordic countries. And I think that people often assume or believe that because they're so far away, you know, they're very distant, it's cold over there, you know, they have different cultural behaviours and expectations and ways <laughs> of doing things that surely Australia is just too different, you know. Our political culture is too different, our, our ways of thinking socially about societies are too different and therefore what could we possibly learn from them? But you really do highlight the fact that that's kind of a bit of a misnomer and obviously there are clear cultural differences, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn lessons such as the fact that they have higher productivity growth without cutting spending on health and education and privatising infrastructure. So I wonder, could you take us through your thoughts on that, uh, particularly kind of making these comparisons about what we expect as a population from our governments and, um, you know, whether you think that's changing or has changed in Australia and, and those kind of cultural concerns? Yeah, no, great question. And, of course, Australia is culturally different from uh, from from Norway and Denmark. Of course we are. But you know what? We're culturally different from China as well. But for decades we've been told that Chinese people get lower wages than us, so that's why we can't have a wage rise. Uh, Australia used to be, and I think still is, culturally different from the US. But that hasn't stopped uh, business leaders and politicians in Australia for decades saying we need to uh, change our industrial relations system because, uh, you know, we need to ape the, the, the US system with very low minimum wages and all sorts of things. So, look, our business leaders and our political leaders draw on international comparisons whenever they want. And whenever they've wanted, they have chosen to find comparators that have said we have to cut wages in Australia, we have to reduce conditions, and we need to cut taxes and we need to reduce government spending. So apparently it's perfectly okay, indeed it's responsible for business leaders and political leaders in Australia to compare us to countries that have got smaller governments and less protections. But it's heresy to say 
could we maybe compare ourselves to the richest countries in the world with the highest rates of productivity growth and the, and literally the happiest, the self-reported happiest populations in the world? Apparently, we have nothing to learn from comparing ourselves to literally the most successful economies in the world. Now, as an economist, I think that's odd. As a citizen, I think that's odd. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it is heresy, as you said, in Australia to say, well, hang on, if they can do it in Norway, why can't we do it here? Uh, and, and the nonsense that comes back from people who just want to cut taxes and just want to spend less on public schools and more on private schools and less on public hospitals and more on private health insurance, uh, yeah, the contempt with which bringing up the UK's NHS or the Finnish education system is treated in Australia is staggering. But, you know, if something exists in another country, then it is possible. Mm. Let's just stop pretending. Let's just stop pretending that we can't do these things when, of course, we can. We've just collectively chosen not to. And what really irritates me is that the people who chose not to, the people that led us down this path, rather than admit it, kind of pretend that they didn't have a choice and that we didn't have a choice. You know, you'd at least think they'd be proud of what they've done, but they're not. They're ashamed. That's why they don't want us to look at Norway or Denmark or Finland or France or Germany. You know, Germany doesn't just have free higher education, free degrees for Germans. Germany offers free degrees to refugees that come to Germany. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> the internet does exist and, and the policy opportunities in Australia are far bigger than, you know, our, our media or public debate allow. But a quick look at how other countries organise themselves, you'll see that, um, yeah, Australia could be quite a different place, comma, if we want it to be. Maybe we don't. Maybe we like the one we've built. I don't, but for democracy, no. I'll go along with what everyone else wants. Well, it's true, though. It is, it's really true that we talk about what things cost and how unrealistic it supposedly is when we don't actually consider what the outcomes could be, just how much of a transformation this could be for any person in Australia. You know, the idea that not having the Hextet burdening you, the idea that you can choose whatever kind of vocation you like without that input from government about which degrees we should be doing, the idea that we might feel financially secure enough to be happy, to make good choices in our lives, to have better mental health and well-being. This is the kind of thing that if we make these choices, there are real life changes for pretty much the whole of society. And I guess that is what is inspiring about politics for many when they start out thinking, I can change Australia, I can change the world. And then we get bogged down in these, as you say, preoccupations with costings and modelling and what's everything going to cost in the minutiae. And of course, costs matter, but this seems to really just shut down any kind of vision that we once did have. And we certainly did have vision in Australia before. So do you think that there are any politicians left up there in Canberra, Richard, who do have that fire in their belly and inspirational motivation left? Oh, absolutely I do. And I don't think they're confined to one party. I, look, you, you can't have a democracy without politicians. Let's be clear. So every time we attack politicians collectively, what we're actually doing is attacking democracy. 
which is, of course, you know, what the what the protesters were doing up here in Canberra on the weekend. So when you say they're all crap and they're all hopeless, what you're saying is democracy doesn't work, what's the point? Well, I'm nowhere near that. Uh, I think democracy really is uh, the, the best idea we've come up with. Uh, and I don't doubt for a minute that politicians from all sides get into politics because they do want to make a difference. But... Uh, just like a fish can't taste the water it swims in, it's very hard for politicians to, individually to say, you know what, everyone in this building is kind of in the thrall of some shit ideas. And we're all so collectively pessimistic. If anyone sticks their head above the parapet with with an idea, you know, they're shot down for being not sensible rather than being able to just start a new debate. So, you know, you mentioned mental health just then. I mean... When someone needs mental health care, and I mean this question quite literally, and this is a question that should be asked of our Prime Minister and our Health Minister regularly, how long should people have to wait to get mental health support? Mm. Like five minutes, an hour, a day, a month? What is good enough? Now, if, and it's a big if, but if we wanted to design a, a mental health care system that works for people, our starting point would be, what does good support look like? And then you would work backwards from that to say, well, what's the, how much is that going to cost and what's the most efficient way to organise it? Imagine if we treated mental health care like we treat the ambulance service. You call an ambulance, you expect someone to come. How come? Well, because, you know, hearing that it's a tough time right now and things are busy doesn't help when you've had a heart attack or when you're bleeding to death. So when someone calls Lifeline and needs help, I reckon they should probably get help about that fast. But we're not allowed to have that conversation in Australia. It would be fiscally reckless to start a conversation with what would good mental health care look like when the mature, responsible thing to do would be to say, oh, how big should the budget deficit be? Mm. Well, we've just watched a government give $40,000 million, $40 billion to businesses that were growing during the crisis, and when challenged on it, they went, yeah, it's okay, no biggie, $40 billion on that. We're about to introduce stage three tax cuts, which will give $9,000 a year in tax cuts to people earning over two hundred grand. $9,000 a year total cost $15 billion per year forever. No one said, where's the money coming from? <laughs> but you want to talk about how long should people have to wait on hold or how long should they wait to get in to see an actual psychologist? Oh, Richard, yes, this wouldn't be cheap. Well, how do you think this should be funded? Are you saying the deficit isn't a problem? Right, so... I think there's lots of politicians on all sides that think we should spend more money on helping people uh, in all sorts of ways, whether it's the quality of food in aged care or the waiting lists to get mental health care. Uh, but there are, unfortunately, we've created a political culture where it's, it's heresy to talk about these things in the big picture form, which is why I called the book Big. <laughs> Exactly, yes. I'm talking to Dr Richard Dennis and we are talking about this book, Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy, out through Monash University Publishing. Richard, 
We've been talking about things that we want to spend money on or would like to spend money on and I would argue should be spending money on. And we will often hear these pushbacks, which we've um, certainly been floating throughout this conversation about, oh, well, how much is this going to cost? Where's the money going to come from? Obviously, given that we have such a high spending government, there is plenty of money around to be spent. We then hear about taxation, and obviously that's a bit of a dirty word as well, isn't it? And um, you bring up taxation in this book in a very easily understandable way, thankfully, and you do quote a former Secretary of Treasury, Martin Parkinson, who said back in 2014 that, quote, the productivity challenge requires a wide-ranging and comprehensive response of which tax reform is a key part. Taxes, of course, detract from how efficiently the economy operates. But it's also important that this public debate, as with all good public debate, is grounded in the facts. Well, as you say, the facts don't show that taxes, quote, detract from how efficiently the economy operates. So I was, you know, really intrigued by that quote and then your um, subsequent discussions around taxation and comparisons with other tax systems around the world and how they create a system that does not disincentivize, to use such a terrible term, spending in the economy and um, engagement in work and attracting highly skilled workers to different countries. You know, you do go through some really excellent examples and I wondered if you could talk about tax a bit more. Yeah, well, let's take that quote. So let's be clear, Dr Martin Parkinson has a PhD in economics. Dr Martin Parkinson was the former Secretary of Treasury, the government department responsible for collecting tax. And Dr Martin Parkinson said that the tax causes inefficiency and that we need to have a debate based on the facts. Well, here's a fact. Dr Martin Parkinson is making that up. There is nothing in economic theory that says all taxes are inefficient. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But in, in, in the kind of Australian policy elite, sucking air over your teeth and saying, oh, yes, you know, the burden of tax, we must lift the burden of tax to free Australians from the yoke of government to drive efficiency... You know, this is what the big kids say to each other day in and day out, and then they preach down to the rest of us about this. And just to choose my words clearly, it is complete and utter crap. The most efficient, most productive, richest countries in the world are Sweden, Denmark, Norway, that have much higher taxes than Australia. Is a carbon tax inefficient? No. Does Martin Parkinson know that? Yes. To suggest that taxes are inefficient is just absolutely wrong, but it's the kind of thing you say in Australia in polite, elite society, right? Usually no one will call you out the way I just did. So, uh, So what do we know about tax? Well, you know, there's the old quote, the price we pay to live in a civilised society. But economists know it's far more than that. We tax cigarettes and alcohol. Why? Well, because we want to discourage people from smoking. Do any economists think that's inefficient? No. Should we have a tax? Uh, should we have a tax on on carbon pollution? Of course we should. Does Martin Parkinson agree? Yes. He just left that out of his little grab. Uh, should we collect a lot more tax? from our resources industry? Yes. Did Ken Henry, another former Treasury Secretary, suggest that we should? Yes, he did. 
did Martin Parkinson have a go at Ken Henry when Ken said we should have a mining tax? No, he supported it. Should we collect more GST? Maybe. How about we put the GST on private school fees? Sign me up. I wouldn't mind collecting more GST on private school fees, which mm. are exempt, or on or on private uh, on private health insurance, which is exempt. Guess who spends more money on private schools and private hospitals? High income earners or low income earners? So sign me up for collecting more money on the GST, but the Martin Parkinsons of the world and, and all of the tax reform debaters. They're always droning on about how we need to put the GST on fresh fruit and vegetables. Well, how is taxing bananas more important or equitable than putting a tax on private school fees? But say you want to put the GST on private school fees and you just pick the fight with power. Say you want to put the GST on bananas and cut people's income taxes and you just made rich people happy. So, you know, unfortunately, the debate about tax in Australia has been dominated, dominated by the interests of people who want their taxes cut. And that's fine. You know, headline, rich people call for tax cut for rich people. OK, <laughs> fair enough. Don't blame them. But what we've done in order to make room for tax cuts for high-income earners is create an entire national fantasy that cutting taxes for high-income earners will drive productivity growth. It won't. Will make the economy more efficient. It won't. Or will trickle down and, and lead to wage rises for poor people. It won't. How do we know this? Well, because we've done it for 20 years and it doesn't, didn't work, and because the countries with much higher taxes than us, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, have higher incomes than us, higher productivity growth than us, much cheaper health and education than us, and they're happier than us. So it's okay. We can be a low-tax backwater if we want to be. We can increase inequality by cutting taxes uh, for, for high-income earners and cutting wages for low-income earners if we want. But to pretend that there's something in the economics textbooks that say we have to do this, well, that, you know, that's a bridge too far for me. Yes, yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you for explaining that so well. One of the things I wanted to pick up from that is you give examples and, and cite some statistics which are very helpful in this book, and you say that in other countries like Denmark, France and Austria, they have a top personal income tax rate of 55% uh, and have no trouble attracting and retaining highly skilled workers. But then you go on to talk about the fact that while that's the case, there is no right amount of tax that a country should collect. And you go on to talk about Australia in particular at the federal level and say that the current cap on taxation is 23.9%, and that came about in 2017. You say that if we just increased that by 1%, the Commonwealth Government would have an extra $20 billion a year to spend. And you say particularly pertinently that if the Commonwealth Government collected a similar proportion of the tax collected in Nordic countries, we would have around $100 billion extra to spend every year on whatever we deemed appropriate. I mean, these are very stark figures and it clearly does come with very different outcomes, as we've already discussed. So when we're thinking about the cap on tax at the moment in Australia. And clearly, as you've just said, the coalition has really built and at the last election built their whole 
policy platform around tax cuts for the rich. We now are coming into a March budget on the 29th instead of May because of the upcoming election, which has to be called very soon. Where is Australia at the moment in terms of tax and, and income tax and, and, and these kind of things? Because it is becoming an election issue. And we are seeing the coalition government, particularly the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, ramping up his quite ridiculous attacks on Labor, suggesting that because they have a small target approach, uh, in his words, to this election, that they're going to somehow sneak in a death tax and they're going to sneak in a carbon tax and they're going to take away all of our money. So where are we at in terms of, uh, I guess, this idea of the tax take in Australia and, and the caps that we've got and what might change or could change if we really wanted to think more broadly, if there isn't some special magic formula of tax? Oh, look, according to well-known leftist organisations like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank and the OECD, uh, Australia is one of the lowest tax countries in the developed world. Now, sure, they could be all wrong and Josh Frydenberg could be right, uh, but the fact is we have low taxes by international standards and in turn we have a small public sector by developed country standards. This is just you know that's what the that's what the data says. Now, is that right or wrong? Well, that's where economists have got very little to say. Um, these are democratic choices. I mean, some people think that uh, you know paying to have your food delivered to home is an outrageous indulgence, and some people think it's very convenient and you'd be mad to go to the shops and get it yourself. There's no right answer to how much money we should spend uh, on, on takeaway food. There's no right answer on how much we should spend on getting it delivered or not. There's no right answer for whether we should drive expensive cars or buy expensive bikes or go on expensive holidays or buy expensive shoes. Economists tend to think that individuals should make that decision all by themselves. And the same is true for how we want to organise our country. If, like the Nordics or the Germans or the French or, or the Brits, you want to have a world-class health system that's great and free to walk in, then buy one. If you can afford it, why not? But we've collectively decided that either we don't want such services or we can't afford such services. And all I can say as an economist is, well, we can certainly afford them. We're one of the richest countries in the world. But we've either been made to feel poor or made to feel that, you know, getting free high-quality services is a bad idea. So, yeah, what, what, what should we do? I don't know. But we shouldn't tell each other stories or make things up about what we can and can't afford. You know, I often say we, we can't afford to do everything we want, but we can afford to do anything we want. And we have to have that democratic conversation. As for Labor and the lead-up to the election and tax, look, let's be clear, they, they, they took an ambitious tax reform agenda to the last election, one that I thought looked pretty good, uh, and they lost. It's a democracy. And the current Labor front bench has clearly decided, well, that was a bit ambitious for the public. Uh, it's like putting too much chilli in your takeaway. If, if the customers say it's a bit spicy, I don't want to eat it, well, you put less chilli in. Labor's clearly decided to put a bit less tax reform in their electoral offering. And the polls suggest that that's a more popular position. Mm. That's their judgment to make. Uh, again, there's no right answer to this. Uh, but I think top of their mind is they think that whatever they say, 
Scott Morrison will just fabricate a position for himself, not on principle or economic theory, but whatever they say, he'll he'll just fabricate a position uh, designed to exaggerate and embarrass them. So they've taken a cautious path of saying, well, we think we'd be better managers of the tax that's already been collected. We'd redistribute it differently than the current, but we're not going to propose any major tax reforms. But, mm. you know, there's, again, there's no right answer for these things. That's not economics. Right? That's democracy. Indeed, indeed. And Richard, one of the things that you raise that um, is not really a, something we can quantify in our everyday society, but it has a massive effect on individuals and it is increasingly so, and that is the fact that you say, quote, shame lies at the heart of the design and differentiation of our public services. That's why we don't make veterans use the Centrelink office, much less retired politicians who need to inquire about their generous pensions for life. That is something we certainly have discussed when we're talking about unemployment and uh, how the government deals with unemployment uh, issues and how people are supported when they have disabilities or chronic illnesses by government. And I wanted to bring in a quote that you share from that, as you might say, a communist, Robert Menzies, who said in 1944, and he was obviously the founder of the Liberal Party, I should tell anyone who wasn't sure who Robert Menzies is, he said, quote, the moment we establish or perpetuate the principle that the citizen, in order to get something he needs or wants and to which he has looked forward, must prove his poverty, we convert him into a suppliant to the state for benevolence. That proposition is inconsistent with the proper dignity of the citizens in a democratic country. Now, these are things which are things we can't quite quantify, but they have, as I said, a, a massive effect and they are really dragging down society and I think actually creating more division and creating this culture that you're talking about or at least perpetuating it so that we don't have this more lofty ambition to provide people with dignity, to live a life free from shame and to be able to be supported when they are most at risk. So I wonder if you could talk about that as well, given that these are things that uh, economists and public policymakers should be considering when they're devising policy, but it appears very much aren't. And these are still coming up, though, when we talk about things like the robo-debt system in Senate estimates. Oh, yes. Look, I, I guess I'm more cynical than you. I think people are very... I think politicians and policymakers are very much aware of the role of shame, and they harness shame, I'll go one step further, to create division. They want division because mm. if there's division, if people don't trust each other, if people are, are, are sceptical of each other, then they'll be less sceptical of the government. So let's be clear, high-income earners get far more from taxpayers in tax concessions for their superannuation than low-income earners will ever get for their age pension. Like if we were worried about money, uh, we, would, we would cap the tax concessions for superannuation but we don't. So we have a two-tier retirement system where the self-funded retirees who've often got millions of dollars in tax concessions, the self-funded retirees can feel proud of themselves and, and we make the age pensioners, say a, a woman who worked in childcare all her life, when she resigns and, and retires, she's supposed to be ashamed that she's on an age pension, uh, whereas with someone who earned a lot more money working in finance all their life, 
uh, getting enormous tax concessions for their super, they get to call themselves uh, a self-funded retiree and they get to be proud for the rest of their lives. Uh, similarly, yeah, we, we spend a fortune on tax concessions for private health insurance so that when people jump the queue and get their hip replaced quickly while someone else waits years for the same operation, they tell themselves, oh, look at me, I'm, I'm, say, I'm taking pressure off the public system. I mean, it's just obscene, but shame is no accident. And yes, I, I very much agree with Robert Menzies' approach, and that is if the parliament says people are entitled to something, then we should give it to them and, and they should feel good about receiving it. But if, if over time you want to cut taxes for yourself and cut spending on other people's health and other people's education and other people's retirement incomes, then you're going to need to change the public's mood, aren't you? You're going to need them to like you and not like the other people. So why not heap scorn on other people for decades? Why not get everyone to think that the unemployed are lazy and that the aged didn't take enough good decisions early in their lives? Why not build resentment and inherent criticism of those in need to help boost your case for getting a tax cut for yourself? None of this is an accident. Smart people are winning. Yeah, yeah, they certainly are. One of the things that I just loved, maybe it's kind of, I guess it's not tongue-in-cheek, but um, it kind of sounds that when you imagine this world that you put in the book, and it did remind me of a conversation I had with Yanis Varoufakis about his book Another Now, which was envisioning a totally different society and way of doing things, and it kind of resonated and was quite similar. You say that, imagine if Australia Post could provide you with a permanent email address and default superannuation, banking, insurance, electricity and phone plans, which were free to use or could just be ignored. Imagine how easy and cheap it would be to switch and compare services and imagine how much the big brands that make billions from your confusion and apathy would hate it. Imagine if you could forward all the spam you get on your phone and you're in your inbox straight to a government regulator who had the resources and resolve to track down who was sending it and do something about it. Another one is um, very interesting. Imagine if all our ABC content was provided for free over our NBN, as was all of the research from our publicly funded universities. So, you know, you give these examples, which kind of sound amazing to me, given where we are currently at, uh, and, you know, like a bit of a utopia, I guess. Clearly, this is a bit of a sliding scale, as you say, about the shape of government, the shape of policy, the choices that politicians make as to what that will be. But you have your own views and I have my own views and those listening have theirs, but what are some of the things that you think Australians have a consensus on that currently government isn't delivering? Uh, absolutely. Oh, look, there is overwhelming public support for the idea that people who work in aged care should be paid more. There is overwhelming public support for the fact that people who work in childcare and, and our nurses should be paid more. There's overwhelming public support for banning junk food advertising to kids. There's overwhelming public support uh, for improving uh, access to affordable housing for young people. There is overwhelming support for so many simple things that other countries do. <laughs> There's nothing utopian about this. It's, it's like pretending that Europe doesn't exist, right? <laughs> it is only outside of the realms of possibility in the tiny little Australian political debate that we have been told we have to have. And the reason for that, 
and, 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 you know, picture an election campaign, and I'm, I'm not having a go at individuals here, picture an election campaign where uh, you've got the nurses' union on telly saying nurses deserve more funding and you've got the teachers' union on saying the teachers deserve more funding. Well, in Australia, we play death match, teachers versus nurses. Who should get more money? <laughs> because mm. we know it has to come all off someone else. All right. So unless we're willing to talk about a bigger public sector, unless we're willing to talk about collecting more tax than we currently do, which is less than nearly every other developed country, unless we're willing to talk about a bigger public sector and collecting more tax, then we have to pay policy death match every election, where if mental health is the winner early childhood development is the loser, where if public transport infrastructure is the winner, then renewable energy is the loser. We're forced into this divide-and-conquer death match by the people who don't want to pay more tax because they don't care about the quality of your health or your education, right? And that's yeah. fine. It's a democracy. That's what they want. But by gee, they've done a great job of confusing and scaring and dividing everybody else. Well, Richard, you've just made such a great point, which is really the whole point of this book, and which is to say that government is getting bigger, as you say, and that the important question is whether it will get better. And that's the final line of the book. Ultimately, that's up to us. And I'm so glad that you have written this because it means that we can have these conversations and change the rhetoric and challenge it as well uh, when we keep hearing things that do not match our reality and also to think about the type of reality we do want as well. So thank you so much for, for coming on and talking about these really big and important issues with us. I hope it's really sparked off some thoughts for those who are listening at home. And, uh, and I also want to just say congratulations on your book launch day today. Uh, thank you, Amy. And this is literally my first uh, interview about uh, about the new essay. So thank you very much. Oh, and if people, like, because bigger isn't always better, if people want to buy the book for a smaller price, go to the Australia Institute website and it's um, it's five bucks cheaper. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, thanks for having me on. And, um, yeah, hopefully people think hard about what kind of country they want to have. And then we need to vote for people whose image for the country most closely approximates yours. There's nothing stopping us from doing it. We just don't seem to want it. Exactly. Well, there's never been a better time with a budget coming up and an election. So, um, yeah, let's keep that going and change the conversation. Thanks, Amy. I've just been chatting with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and um, you can check out his book, Big, The Role of the State in the Modern Economy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.